Welcome to Module 19 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. We're examining what are known as substantive errors, that is, judicial review on substantive grounds. Recall our focus here is on the what of the decision. When can we challenge that what in the course of our four-step approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power? As we've learned over the last several modules, the answer to that question is closely tied to concerns about how much deference courts owe to administrative decision makers. And so, as I have repeatedly suggested, any allegation that a delegate made a substantive error requires you to resolve two primordial questions. First, when will the court show deference? And second, what does deference mean in practice? On that first question, that is, when will the courts show deference, the Supreme Court developed several tests for determining what is known as the standard of review, the most recent of which is that in Vavilov in 2019. In the last module, we examined this test and looked at how Vavilov revamped the standard of review approach. We noted that the modern test is now much simplified, and any lingering preoccupation with a contextual approach to answering this standard of review question has now been abandoned. Instead, we start with the default standard of review for substantive errors, something called reasonableness. That is, this default is one of deference. Only in limited circumstances is there, to use my analogy, an off-ramp from the road leading straight to reasonableness. And in the last module, we looked at these off-ramps. We looked first at where the legislature prescribes a different standard of review. And that happens in two ways. First, either the legislature specifies a different standard of review in a statute, or secondly, the legislature creates a statutory right of appeal from the delegate to the court. The second off-ramp, where the rule of law requires that the standard of correctness be applied. And there, there were three circumstances, general questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole, questions relating to the jurisdictional boundaries between two or more administrative bodies, and constitutional questions, subject to something called the Dory exception, which I keep alluding to, but which we need to explore in greater detail in a future module. Now, these off-ramps, these rebuttals to the default of reasonableness will always be relatively uncommon in judicial review cases. They're not going to be that frequent. And so the standard of review will almost always be reasonableness. But note that so far in this discussion, I have said very little about that other primordial question. What does deference mean in practice? Or more concretely, what does reasonableness mean in practice? What does reasonableness mean in practice is a question never satisfactorily answered by the Supreme Court until Vavilov. So our task in this module is to address the question. After Vavilov, what does reasonableness mean in practice? So let's return to an analogy I used a few modules ago. The idea of a dartboard, or because I have better graphics for archery than for darts, let's imagine that we have a target at which an administrative decision maker is shooting substantive arrows. In this analogy, Correctness means hitting the bullseye. To avoid court intervention on judicial review, where the standard of review is correctness, the delegate has to be right. So, for example, the court has to agree with the delegate's understanding of a legal provision it is applying. 
Here, there is no deference. There is no tolerance. The delegate has to, in the view of the reviewing court, hit the bullseye. Reasonableness, in comparison, is more tolerant. You don't have to hit the bullseye, but you do need to be on that target. Put another way, the range of places the delegate can hit on that target and still avoid intervention from the court is much greater than simply striking the bullseye. Reasonableness means staying on the target. Being unreasonable means not hitting the target at all. So this analogy necessarily begs the question, what constitutes the target? To say you have to get the law right to meet the correctness standard is fairly intuitive. Less intuitive is you don't need to get the law right, you just need to be close enough that it's not off the target. What does that mean in practice? The Supreme Court has, over the years, tried to describe what it means by reasonableness. That is, it has tried to describe what it means when it talks about something still being on target, even though it's not in the bullseye. In Vavilov, it builds on these earlier statements to create, if not a precise test per se, then some indicia or signposts for things that make a decision unreasonable. So our task in this module is to walk through this discussion and make, again, not a prescriptive test, but at least compile an understanding of things that the courts will now regard as missing the target, as constituting an unreasonable decision. Now, to do that, we need to start where the Supreme Court does and do a little bit of throat clearing on a preliminary question. And as we get underway, I'm going to point you to relevant sections of the Vavilov case. So you may wish to pause here and grab your copy of Vavilov. And in fact, I'm going to indicate breaks between various sections of this discussion of reasonableness review where it's useful to hit the pause key on this audio or video recording and go back to the case and look at the relevant sections of it. In other words, we should have intermissions. So before we get underway, grab Vavilov and go to paragraph 73, which is marked under the heading Roman numeral 3, Performing Reasonableness Review. And as you're doing that, we'll take a little intermission. Okay, we're back. Turning back to the topic du jour. Substantive review, recall, is about the what of the decision, the outcome. So that means substantive review is, as the Supreme Court says, about the decision actually made by the decision maker, including both the decision maker's reasoning process and the outcome. So notice in the Supreme Court's mind, there are two ingredients, outcome and reasoning process. Now, reasoning process uses the word process, but this is not process in the procedural fairness sense. Procedural fairness, recall, was about the degree to which the delegate properly engaged with the interested parties in a process that led to a decision. Reasoning process, as the court uses it in Vavilov, is about the logic and rationality of the outcome. So please do not conflate reasoning process with procedural fairness. The court may use similar terminology, but it's talking about two different things here. Okay, so how are you going to measure the reasoning process? Well, it's helpful if you're going to measure the reasoning process, if the decision maker has, well, reasons. Now recall, we've talked about reasons before when we talked about procedural fairness and procedural entitlements. 
We said that reasons were not automatically obligatory under procedural fairness. And like all other procedural entitlements, whether they are required depends on the circumstances. Recall in Baker, the court focused on the importance of the decision and the existence of a statutory right of appeal as those guiding considerations determining when reasons are required. And if reasons are owed under procedural fairness and none are given, that is a procedural error constituting a procedural ground of review and it generally results in the decision being set aside. None of that is changed by Vavilov. But where reasons are required by procedural fairness or are otherwise provided by the decision maker, the Supreme Court in Vavilov emphasizes that it's these reasons that then become the key focus for any substantive assessment of the decision, that is the outcome and the reasoning process. In the Supreme Court's words, reasons are the primary mechanism by which administrative decision makers show that their decisions are reasonable, both to the affected parties and to the reviewing courts. And a principled approach to reasonableness must put these reasons first in the analysis. And so reasonableness analysis or review requires a respectful examination of the reasons in order to understand the decision makers' reasoning process and their conclusions, their outcome. Now, to be clear, padding a decision with seemingly robust reasons does not justify terrible outcomes. As the Supreme Court says, some outcomes may be at odds with the legal and factual context, such that they can never be supported by intelligible and rational reasoning. But so too, a reasonable outcome may become unreasonable if it was reached on an improper basis, and so if the reasoning process is deficient in some manner. Now, of course, footnote here, in Vavilov itself, in the case itself, reasons were in fact required as a matter of procedural fairness and were available to the court. But there will be many cases where reasons are not required by procedural fairness and are not available. Vavilov does not change this. But even where there are no reasons, the court should be able to detect the reasoning process, usually somewhere in the record of decision as a whole, and so correspondence or other paperwork that might fill the file at issue. That record may reveal, for example, the existence of an improper motive. So think of a case like Ron Corelli. There weren't reasons per se, but there was enough commentary around the decision as to reveal the basis for the decision made by Premier Duplessis in that case. Where this sort of forensic inquiry is not possible to unearth the reasoning process, well, says the court, the practical reality is that reasonableness review will need to focus more on outcome than on the reasoning process itself. Okay, so that's our first little bit of throat clearing, our first preliminary consideration. There's a separate set of considerations that the Supreme Court talks about at the outset of its discussion on reasonableness review. I'll call this the discussion of attitude, the court's attitude, the attitude of the judge approaching reasonableness review. And let me put it this way. Courts don't get to presuppose the size of the target. They are not to be too assiduous in assessing the decision maker's reasons. They need to bring the right attitude to reasonableness review. Remember, this is supposed to be about deference. So they need to be attentive to the application by the decision maker of any specialized knowledge, any expertise. Respectful attention to that decision maker's demonstrable expertise may reveal to the review in court an outcome that might have seemed at least initially puzzling or counterintuitive or just plain unreasonable on its face, but then once you're attentive to this expertise and appreciate the practical realities of the relevant administrative regime, 
the court may, in fact, conclude that it, in fact, is a reasonable outcome or reasoning process. The other thing that the Supreme Court talks about in this discussion of attitudinal predispositions that the court should embrace, the reviewing court must also read the decision maker's reasons in light of, in the court's words, history and in the context of the proceedings in which they were rendered. And so the reviewing court might consider the evidence before the decision maker, the submissions of the parties, publicly available policies or guidelines that inform the decision maker's work and past decisions of the relevant administrative body. All this may explain the decision maker's reasoning process in a manner that's not apparent from the reasons themselves. So how do I translate this attitudinal predisposition that courts are supposed to exhibit on judicial review into my dartboard or target analogy? Well, sometimes a court will say, look, this is the size of the target. But the decision maker's particular expertise or that context I just mentioned must be such that really the target is bigger than what the court presupposes. That when the court takes into account this relative expertise in that context, the target is actually bigger. It has a few more outer rings. The expertise in the context, in other words, guides the size of the permissible arrow-hitting zone, not the court's presuppositions. But still, a caution. Courts are not supposed to save delegates from their own inadequacies. As the court says, it is not ordinarily appropriate for the reviewing court to fashion its own reasons in order to buttress the administrative decision. Even if the outcome of the decision can be reasonable under different circumstances, it is not open to a reviewing court to disregard the flawed basis for a decision and substitute its own justification for the outcome. In other words, don't do the delegates' work for them. It's not for you, the court, to retrospectively and forensically recreate the decision and the reasons that the delegate should have issued in order to somehow resuscitate an otherwise flawed outcome or reasoning process. There's also what I call the Spider-Man rule, which comes a little bit later in the Supreme Court's decision. It talks about the Spider-Man rule is one of the indicia of reasonableness. I think the Spider-Man rule really relates to the attitudinal predisposition that courts should observe in circumstances where the Spider-Man rule applies. That pushes back against the otherwise deferential attitude that the court should have towards the decisions of the delegates in applying the reasonableness standard of review. Okay, so that covers the discussion in Vavilov from about paragraph 73 to 98, along with some observations about when reasons are not provided and what you do there in paragraphs 136 and 138. This is sort of a preambular discussion, really, a throat clearing, a clarification of past controversies. It's time now, though, to turn to what the court considers indicia or signposts of unreasonableness. And this discussion really begins at paragraph 99. But before we get there, as you're flipping through the case, let's take another intermission. Okay, we're back. Okay, so let me turn then to these indicia of unreasonableness. Court doesn't use this expression, indicia of unreasonableness. It is used by other courts in other contexts. I think it's a great expression. Let's talk about it. Okay, what is it then that the court can look at in trying to decide whether, in fact, a decision is unreasonable? What is it that would put the delegate outside of their permissible target zone? 
what sort of reasoning process or what sort of outcome is of such a nature as to render it unreasonable? Well, the court starts with some high-level language from Dunsmuir. The reviewing court asks whether the decision bears the hallmarks of reasonableness, and those hallmarks are justification, transparency, and intelligibility, and whether the decision is justified in relation to the relevant factual and legal constraints that bear on the decision. And so the court says there are two fundamental flaws that will make a decision unreasonable. The first is a failure of rationality internal to the reasoning process. And the second arises when a decision is untenable in light of relevant factual and legal constraints that apply to it. So let's talk first about the absence of internal rationality. The reviewing court, says the Supreme Court, must be able to trace the decision maker's reasoning without encountering fatal flaws in the overarching logic. It has to be satisfied that there's a line of analysis within the reasons that could reasonably lead the tribunal from the evidence before it to the conclusion at which it arrived. And so simply repeating statutory language, summarizing arguments, and then stating a preemptory conclusion does not assist a reviewing court in understanding the rationale underlying a decision. That would be something lacking in internal coherence, internal rationality. And so what you're looking for if you're going to conclude that a decision is unreasonable on the basis of this first concern about internal rationality, well, the conclusion reached cannot follow from the analysis undertaken. Let me give you an extreme example. The sky is blue. I had Cheerios for breakfast. And under my powers in the Aeronautics Act, I will not give you a security clearance. Well, it may be true that the sky is blue. It may be true that the decision maker had Cheerios for breakfast, but it does not follow from either of those assertions of fact why it is that the decision maker is denying a security clearance. That's an extreme example. There can also be what the Supreme Court calls logical fallacies. And, and if you look on the internet, you'll find that there is a list of logical fallacies. They include things like, and the Supreme Court mentions this, circular reasoning, false dilemmas, unfounded generalizations, and absurd premises. These are all fatal flaws. Let me give you an example. All ducks lay eggs. This bird laid an egg. Therefore, this bird is a duck. Well, it may be true that all ducks lay eggs. It may be true that this bird laid an egg, but it could not follow that this bird must therefore be a duck because there could be other birds beyond ducks that lay eggs. This is an example of what we would call a syllogistic fallacy. Let me give you another example involving something other than ducks. All terrorists are dangerous. This man is dangerous. Therefore, this man is a terrorist. Again, another syllogistic fallacy. So that's the first prong, the absence of internal rationality. What about the second prong in terms of indicia of unreasonableness? Well, the Supreme Court talks about a decision that's untenable in light of the relevant factual and legal constraints that apply to that decision. And so here the Supreme Court lists a number of specific examples, a number of elements that will generally be relevant in deciding whether a given decision is reasonable under the second heading. Namely, the governing statutory scheme, other relevant statutory or common law rules, the principles of statutory interpretation, the evidence before the decision maker and the facts of which the decision maker may take notice, 
the submissions of the parties, the past practices and decisions of the administrative body, and the potential impact of the decision on the individual to whom it applies. Now, the Supreme Court emphasizes that these elements are not a checklist for conducting reasonableness review. It's not a mechanical algorithm that you can apply to decide whether a decision is reasonable or not. And the significance of these variables will vary depending on the context, which is a bit of a worrisome observation, I have to say, in terms of where courts might go with this test in the future. But if we can't treat these elements as a checklist, perhaps we can imagine them as a toolkit a series of considerations that courts can look to in deciding whether a decision is reasonable. Or coming back to my dartboard analogy, my target analogy, a series of tools you can use to measure whether in fact the arrow hits the target or not. So in practice, if we were to subdivide these considerations, I'd say that there are several considerations that are an echo of what we used to call the old substantive grounds of review, error of law, error of fact, and abuse of discretion. I noted that those were no longer the driving considerations for standard of review analyses, but they do have an echo here on the reasonableness side of the house. So first, governing statutory scheme. Administrative decision makers, says the court, are not permitted to disregard or rewrite the laws that Parliament enacted. That's pretty obvious. Here also, the Supreme Court suggests a bit of an echo in relation to what we used to call abuse of discretion. And so the court goes on and says, for example, while an administrative body may have considerable discretion in making a particular decision, that decision must ultimately comply with the rationale and purview of the statutory scheme under which it is adopted. And there's an echo here of that Roncarelli concern with a decision maker who has the power to make a choice, but they exercise that choice not for reasons related to the statute itself, but for some extraneous or improper purpose. Next, other statutory or common law rules. And here you have an echo of error of law. Ignoring established legal principles or past common law precedents that are binding on the decision maker. Or ignoring the presumption in Canadian common law that the government is expected to conform with Canada's international law obligations absent some statutory provision that runs counter to those obligations. The third tool in the toolbox, principles of statutory interpretation. Again, another echo of error of law. Here we're talking about the error of law in the construal of a statute that the delegate might apply. They have to interpret that statute. Well, can they just shoot from the hip? Not really. They can't depart from the conventional approach to statutory interpretation known as the modern approach to statutory interpretation. Now, I'm hoping that this modern approach is familiar to you from your studies in first year and your course on public law in which you would have discussed the legislative process and how to read statutes. But the modern approach essentially says that in order to understand statutory provisions, the words of a statute must be read in their entire context and in their grammatical and ordinary sense harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intention of parliament. That is the modern rule. It's the one that courts are supposed to apply. It's also the one that delegates in interpreting statutes they are obliged to apply must observe. Now, there's no need for them to be as detailed or formulistic as a court in applying the modern approach of statutory interpretation. The court has to be attentive to relative expertise. Remember that attitudinal predisposition that they're supposed to be exercising. And they can't just assume that there's only one correct interpretation of a given statutory provision, and they happen to know it and the delegate doesn't. But, says the court, the decision maker is to interpret 
the provision in a manner consistent with the text, context, and purpose of that provision, applying whatever particular insight into the statutory scheme it has because of its expertise. It cannot adopt an interpretation it knows to be inferior merely because the interpretation in question appears to be available and is expedient. The decision maker's responsibility is to discern meaning and legislative intent, not to reverse engineer a desired outcome. I read that as saying, well, the decision maker may have policy preferences, but those policy preferences can't color the content of a statutory provision. If those policy preferences aren't part of that statutory framework, if they're not embedded in some manner in that statutory provision as reflected in the modern approach to statutory interpretation, well, the delegate can't march according to their own drum, their own policy preferences. They have to interpret the statute in keeping with the conventional approach for interpreting statutes, one that looks for legislative intent and tries to give expression to the perspectives of the legislature, not the policy preferences of the executive decision maker themselves. Next, in terms of our tools, evidence before the decision maker. This is an echo of that old concept of error of fact. And there, the review has always been deferential on error of fact. It's always been a reasonableness standard or something approximating reasonableness. The delegate, says the Supreme Court, has to base their decisions on the facts in the evidence. Where they misunderstand those facts or fail to consider them or do not base their decision on evidence that was actually before them, this is unreasonable. Now, beyond these indicia, these tools, the Supreme Court invokes new considerations, new tools. And in fact, in some of these tools, there's a bit of an overlap, a drift, if you will, towards some of the considerations that we talked about when we talked about procedural entitlements. And so the first new tool that the Supreme Court invokes in deciding whether a decision is reasonable or not, past practices and decisions of the administrative body itself. Now, to be clear, administrative decision makers are not bound by strict rules of precedent, stare decisis, like courts are. But administrative decision makers are concerned about consistency. Administration would be cast into disrepute if decisions were entirely dependent upon the idiosyncratic perspectives of individual decision makers. So consistency is important. And in fact, in Consolidated Bathurst and Ellis Dawn and Tremblay, in our discussions about procedural entitlements, we noted that many decision makers, those formal tribunals, those boards, often try to convene in a manner that allows them to discuss how to render decisions consistently. There, recall, there was a debate as to whether those sorts of meetings might somehow constitute a violation of the they who hears must decide rule or constitute a form of institutional bias. Recall that there were rules on when that would be permissible and when it would not be permissible. But bottom line is decision makers are concerned with consistency. And so if they have past practices or decisions that rely one on the other, to depart from that precedent in a given circumstance requires justification. And so if you are, as a decision maker, going to depart from that past practice, there is, says the court in Vavilov, a justificatory burden on you to explain that departure in your reasons. And if you do not satisfy that burden, the decision will be unreasonable. And the court even invokes the idea of a legitimate expectation in this context, although I'm not sure that it really meant to talk about legitimate expectation in the same way that it talks about legitimate expectation in the procedural context. So to sum up on this point, if a decision departs from long-standing practices or long-standing internal decisions, they will only be reasonable if that departure is justified, reducing the risk of arbitrariness 
which would otherwise undermine public confidence in administrative decision makers and the justice system as a whole. Okay, next in terms of our list of new tools, submissions of the parties. The Supreme Court suggests that a decision maker who fails to meaningfully grapple with key issues or central arguments raised by the parties may be regarded as acting unreasonably. They were not sufficiently alert or sensitive to the matter before it. Again, this new tool has an almost procedural entitlement flavor to it. Recall that on the procedural side, there's a right to be heard. Well, the Supreme Court is now going that step further on substantive review and saying, well, the right to be heard translates into some sort of substantive obligation to be attentive in the course of developing reasons to what it was that the parties argued. And then last amongst the new tools that might drive a finding of unreasonableness, there's this reference to the impact of the decision on the affected individual. Where the impact of the decision on an individual's rights and interests is severe, the reasons provided to that individual must reflect the stakes. And that means that if the decision has a particularly harsh consequence for the affected individual, the decision maker must explain why its decision best reflects the legislature's intention. So the more critical the decision to the individual, the more robust the reasoning process has to be. And the Supreme Court goes on and says that many administrative decision makers are entrusted with an extraordinary degree of power over the lives of ordinary people, including the most vulnerable. The corollary to that power is a heightened responsibility on the part of the decision maker to make sure their reasons demonstrate that they have considered the consequences of their decision and that their decision is justified in light of the facts and law. So the more important the consequences, the more demanding the courts might be of the reasoning process. I call this the Spider-Man rule. With great power comes great responsibility. Well, as I mentioned before, this Spider-Man rule, it seems to me, a countervail to that earlier discussion about the attitudinal predisposition that courts should have when they engage in judicial review. Recall that they are supposed to be effectively deferential and pay heed to the expertise of the tribunal in trying to decide how big that target is. Well, here, the court is suggesting that where the consequences are really dire, perhaps that court can be a little more demanding and a little less deferential in terms of its application of the reasonableness standard. Now, to be clear, the court didn't put it that way. But I think that might be a useful way of going at these sorts of questions. Now, the other point I'll make about this impact of the decision on the affected individual, again, it has an echo from the sort of considerations we saw with both the trigger threshold for common law procedural fairness and then also the Baker test. Recall that the procedural entitlement was greater where the impact on the individual was greater. So you're seeing in Vavilov an overlap of considerations, considerations that drive the analysis both on the procedural side and now with some of these new indicia of reasonableness, the same sorts of considerations are driving, at least in part, the assessment of reasonableness. But nevertheless, procedural entitlements and substantive review remain segmented and so do not assume that this slight degree of overlap means that the two are now indistinguishable. All right, so that's Vavilov and its reasonableness test. It's a lot. It's quite dense. It's difficult to see how one would apply this in practice. This is a laundry list of considerations and less an algorithm. And so one of the things that we're going to try to do towards the end of our discussion of Vavilov is try to pull all these variables together in something that looks like, well, I don't want to say checklist because the Supreme Court has said no checklists, but at least some sort of tool or decision tree that you can use in order to approach these questions of substantive review. But before we do that, we have to look at 
a few other things in some other modules. We have some leftovers from Vavilov that we have to attend to. And so that is the topic for our next module. This ends module 19.